So if you have your Bibles, keep them open to the book of Colossians as we start a new series here in 2024. And some of you might ask, why Colossians? I don't know, some of you may feel like we've got like a, you know, a, a dartboard with all the books of the Bible and we, we throw a dart and it hits and we, you know, do that. Well, no, there is a little bit more of a rhyme or reason to it. We often try to go from Old Testament to New Testament. We were in the Old Testament most of the fall with the study of Genesis 1 through 12. So now we're in the New Testament. We also try to break up and do different genres of material. So we've done poetry with Lamentations. We've done Minor Prophets with Amos and and, and, and uh, Jonah, and then we've been in the New Testament with uh, Ephesians and James and uh, other epistles, and then moved to Acts, which is a historical book. We did Mark, one of the Gospels, etc. And so uh, this seemed like a good um, sort of a different genre of Scripture than we've been doing in order so we all have a steady and healthy and balanced diet from all the portions of God's Word. Colossians is kind of an important book in in many ways for this church. For many years, when I came here in 1989, on the front of the bulletin, it would would say, it would would quote Colossians 1.18, that in everything he might be preeminent, or that he might have the supremacy. Part of the vision of the founders of this church was to make sure that Jesus Christ would be front and center. That he would be first place, not only in our individual lives, but in the church as well. But of course, it's difficult for us sometimes to keep Jesus Christ front and center. We just sang a a hymn not, well, a few minutes ago. Well, some of you sang it. Some of you were still obviously shoveling your driveway. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm not kidding that much, but I'm kidding a little bit. Don't feel guilty. It's all by grace, okay? It's all by grace. But we sang a hymn this morning. Come thou fount. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And certainly there's always a temptation to devalue Jesus. I mean, there's plenty of people here in the Princeton area who would say, oh, Jesus was a good teacher, or he was a good prophet, or... He did some miracles, but, 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 but they wouldn't believe that he is God in the flesh, of course. And, and the book of Colossians will help us understand fully that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. But there's an equal danger for us, I think, most of us in this room, is that we would be tempted to add to Jesus that yes, we, 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 we love the idea of Jesus, and yes, we've trusted Jesus Christ, and now we have the forgiveness of sins, and that's how we entered into, uh, into faith and, 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 and into a right relationship with God. But it's very easy. I know this in my own life, and I, I assume that you're about as dysfunctional as I am. <coughs> you, you know, I, it's all by grace to get in, so to speak. But then we somehow forget that The way we got in through the gospel of Jesus Christ is the way we grow as followers of Jesus Christ. We we don't don't go, oh, it's all by grace, and now it's up to me. Now it's up to me to, to do enough good things so that I can progress in the Christian life. We can forget the gospel that way and 101 other ways. And that's why we need Colossians. That's why I need Colossians. That's why you need Colossians. 
We need to look at this amazing book over the next three months and begin to make sure that our lives are more quickly recentered on Jesus Christ plus nothing else. To make sure that we understand that, that yes, we, we became a child of God through the grace of Jesus Christ, but the way we grow in Jesus Christ is from that same Jesus plus nothing else. And so this morning as we uh, launch into... Uh, Colossians here, I want us to take a two-part assessment. One of the interesting things about Colossians is, yes, it's going to give us incredible doctrinal truth, but often what Paul does in giving us this amazing truth about who Jesus is, he subtly throughout the book helps us to understand if we, if we really believe that about Jesus, we would live differently. And if we're not living differently, we've lost touch with Jesus. We've probably added something to Jesus. It's Jesus plus something else. So let's take this two-part assessment. So let's look at the first area of assessment. In verses 3 through, through 8, Paul commends the believers in Colossae. It's interesting that many commentators say that Colossae was the most unimportant city that Paul wrote to. It was a city that several hundred years before the time of the writing was actually a major city on a, a series of trade routes there in what is present-day Turkey. But by the time Paul wrote to these believers in Colossae, the nearby towns of Laodicea and Hierapolis were taking prominence over Colossae. It's interesting that Paul, it doesn't appear that Paul had ever visited Colossae. In fact, we believe that the church was planted by one of his associates, Epaphras, which we read about in verse 7. What Paul does is he thanks God for these believers, beginning in verse 3. He mentions that they are being prayed for by Paul and Timothy. In verse 4, Paul mentions that he has heard of their faith and their love for all the believers, and all of this was based on the hope that had been laid up for them in heaven. Take a look at verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in, in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, and then in verse 5, because of this hope laid up for you in heaven, and of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. This is what I want to, to look at as the, the first area of assessment for your life and for mine. Paul is saying that these believers have grabbed a hold of the hope that comes through the gospel, that comes specifically through the person of Jesus Christ. It's a hope that's being laid out for them in heaven. In other words, it's not a hope that they generate on their own. It's a hope that God has bestowed upon them through Jesus Christ, and he's holding that hope, and the full um, experience of that hope is being held in heaven, kept for them in heaven. 
And he's saying very clearly that the Colossian believers have grabbed a hold of this hope. They understand that through Christ alone, plus nothing else, they have hope for the future. They have a hope that their life, even after death, that they will be raised again, that they will live with, with Christ in heaven forever, that the world will be restored, that there will be no more sin and death and all of the things that make life so unlivable, and that their hope is completely secure. And again, their hope is not based on their present circumstances. Their hope is not based on their efforts. Their hope is not based on how life goes for them in this world. Their future hope has been secured for them by Jesus Christ through the gospel. And that hope is sure to be realized. Nothing can prevent them from experiencing the hope that is theirs for a life with Jesus Christ in heaven, free from sin and death. And what Paul says in this is remarkable what he says. He says that hope that the Colossian believers have grabbed a hold of enables them to continue to be confident in Jesus Christ now. It strengthens their faith no matter what their circumstances, and it enables them to love other people well. Since their future is secure, they are free, free to love others well, consistently, more comprehensively. And so what Paul is saying here, as he commends the, these believers, he's saying if Jesus Christ has preeminence in our life, if he's truly, functionally, first place in our lives, if it's Jesus plus nothing, we will have hope no matter what is happening in the world, no matter what is happening in our lives, and that that hope will enable us to believe Jesus in real time, but also that hope will propel us to love other people well. So in this assessment, I would say, honestly, I mean, you should ask yourselves this question. Where is your functional hope? Now, I suspect on Sunday morning, it's easy. We sing songs. We hear God's word. We're hoping in Jesus. Yes, right today, right now. But what about Wednesday afternoon, Thursday afternoon, Friday morning, Saturday? Is Jesus Christ actually your fundamental actual, functional hope. Some questions to ask, right? How anxious are you about your personal circumstances this morning? How anxious are you about the country we live in? I'm a little nervous. I'll be honest. If you're not nervous, good for you, you haven't been reading the news. There's an election coming up. I'm sure it will all go swimmingly. If our hope is fully in Jesus Christ, we may have serious concerns, of course. We may be grieved, of course. But we will not be undone because we have hope, a sure hope, that as bad as it may get for us in this world, a new world is coming, and we're going to be a part of it. And it should change the way you view even your most difficult circumstances. 
And of course, what happens to us when we, when we lose sight of that hope, when we're prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, we start not looking at Jesus, we start looking at our present circumstances, or we look at the difficult people in our life, and we lose sight of that hope, and now our hope actually, functionally, is in this world, which is shaky at best. And then, of course, when our hope is not centered in Jesus plus nothing else, we, we, we begin to be undone and overly anxious about our present circumstances, which, which prevents us from having a robust faith in Jesus Christ and also prevents us from loving other people. Well, you know how this happens to you. If you get overwhelmed with anxiety, and we all do from time to time, if we get worried about very real things that are important to God, but we, we, we take our eyes off of Jesus, we, we, I mean, how often has this happened to you when you get in a, a sense of several different trials? And what's the first thing that, that goes out of your, 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 your walk with Jesus Christ? Your prayer life goes down because you're too nervous to pray. And then, of course, if you're really under pressure, you can't think about other people and care for them because you're pretty self-focused with your own burdens and your own cares, and your lack of love for other people becomes consistent. C.S. Lewis said, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God alone. And just a couple more things to think about in your assessment. Sometimes we put our hope in very silly things because we get our eyes off of Jesus. I'm going to confess something. I'm probably telling this story a little bit to needle Philadelphia Eagle fans, but it's a true confession. Last Sunday, I didn't work. I was off. Um, I was uh, burdened about a few things in my life, nothing to do with the church. I wasn't worried about you. I wasn't thinking about you. I love you, but not that much. Last week. And I'm burdened by these things. And honestly, I'm not really looking to Jesus as, as closely and as seriously as I should have been. So all afternoon, sort of burdened by these different things, different people in my life were struggling with different things, and I was burdened by all of it. Late Sunday afternoon, I checked the NFL football scores and saw that the Philadelphia Eagles had lost, which meant that my team, America's team, <laughs> I'm sorry, could get the second seed in the NFC playoffs, and we could play two playoff games at home, and for an hour... I had hope, not in Jesus, but this, bu this buoyed my faith. I think it also buoyed my faith because I thought of some of you who are Eagle fans and I sort of chuckled as to what you might be feeling. I love you. But this sort of very temporary hope was, was erased about an hour later as I began to think about history. I love history. If you know the history of the Dallas Cowboys, you know that they're probably going to lose at home in the playoffs. We've done that quite nicely for the last 30 years. And then my hope began to disappear. And I began to envision Eagle fans mocking me, 
saying, ah, you got the number two seed, but you're down of the playoffs. And you take your eyes off of Jesus, even for these little things, it's, it's spiritually destructive. When it's not Jesus plus nothing, if it's Jesus plus getting your team, you know, in, 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 into, the, into the playoffs at home, that is so superficial and it never will be sustaining. Now, of course, we'd always, we, we don't always put our hopes in something so trivial as that. Some things we have, our hope is, is put in Jesus, but something else is maybe a little bit more important. I suspect there's a number of high school students right now, seniors in high school, thinking pretty a lot about where am I going to go to college? Am I going to get into that school? And you've got a hope, you've got a dream. Now, nothing wrong with hopes and dreams, but if that begins to impinge upon Jesus, in other words, if your hope is not functionally in Christ plus nothing else, that other hope of getting into that right school is going to pull you away from Jesus. And it's going to prevent you from having faith and confidence in Christ in a robust way, and it's going to keep you from loving others. Others of us have hope, and, 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 and you, know, I, you know, some of you in grad school, I'm, I'm hoping I get a tenure-track position. Some of you are probably saying, if I don't get a postdoc in the next four months, I'm going to be at Chick-fil-A. Others of you have hopes and dreams for your kids. Nothing wrong with that, but if it supplants your hope in Jesus, you're depending upon your kids to do well or to be successful, or maybe they're going to they're keep in the faith and have a robust faith. But if that's where your hope is, you are in dangerous territory. And it won't simply be disappointing. It will undercut your faith in Jesus Christ, as Paul described. It's your hope that fuels your faith. It's your hope that fuels your love for other people. There's only one person who can give you solid hope in a broken world, and that's Jesus Christ plus nothing else. And if you routinely find yourself in dread about the, the world or the politics of our country or this election coming up or just things in your own life begin to dominate you, it may be an indication that Jesus Christ is not actually and functionally preeminent in your own heart. Now I want to encourage you, there's a lot more in verses 3 through 8. I would encourage you to spend time this week reading through Colossians 1, 1 through 14, the text we're looking at this morning, and see the other assessments as Paul commends this church in Colossae. He is setting up a, a host of assessments. In other words, if Christ is preeminent, this is how you ought to live. And if you're not living this way, then maybe you say, maybe Jesus Christ is not functionally preeminent in my own heart. There's a second area of assessment, and that's in the prayer. And I've just prayed that prayer for you not too long ago here, a few minutes ago. It's in verses 9 through 14. I would suggest that this prayer is a great model of prayer for us as we start the series on Colossians. It's a great prayer to help keep Jesus Christ front and center in our lives. It's a great prayer to pray for yourself. It's a great prayer to pray for other people. 
Now, in this prayer request, as, as, as in the first section, verses 3 through 8 and 9 through 14, there's a number of different assessments we could have done. I boil it down to two. I would encourage you to read Colossians 1, 1 through 14, particularly 9 through 14, to see the other ways in which you're praying, how it could reinforce, as God answers that prayer, how it could reinforce you keeping Jesus Christ front and center. Paul is going to pray that these believers are filled with the knowledge of God's will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I'm just going to summarize it. That's not the the main part of of what I want to to deal with in this prayer. But it's interesting. Paul is praying for them that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And they would be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is like major importance to Paul as he prays for these believers. What is it that we all do when we're under trial? We stop reading God's word. I mean, I've, I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it with other people. I get a lot of pressure. I'm starting to get panicked about certain things. And the first thing that goes is my prayer life and then the Bible reading. And yet this is what Paul is saying. You need the knowledge of God's will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. <clears throat> he also asked God to help these believers live lives pleasing to God. In other words, if your character, the way you live your life, is inconsistent with the character of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is probably not functionally front and center, preeminent in your life. He prays that the gospel would bear fruit and that they would have an increasing knowledge of God. Again, I've mentioned this before. I think too many of us think, oh, I, I came to Christ by grace and now it's all up to me in my own efforts to become more like Jesus. No, the same gospel that brings you to Jesus is the same gospel that will make you more like Jesus. So what I want to focus on the second assessment is the prayer request in verse 11. He says, may you be strengthened with all power according to the, his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy. Paul is asking that the power of Christ, the power of God, his glorious might. Jesus Christ is the one who has conquered sin and death. And who is now at the right hand of the Father. Has all authority, all power. He's saying I need, we need to be strengthened with that power. By his glorious might. So that What? We have all endurance and patience with joy. I think this is very fascinating. He wants the power of Christ to be manifested in the lives of these believers and in our lives so that they would have endurance, patience, and joy. What do we often pray for? particularly for ourselves, when we're in the midst of difficult circumstances, we pray that our trials would stop now. That's the prayer. Stop these circumstances, and if we're dealing with difficult people, be merciful to these people and have them move far away from me. Well, Paul is saying, no, I'm praying for the very power of Christ to be manifested in your life so that you will have the power to endure and the power to have patience and the power to have joy. Now, I don't want to make too much of this because I think endurance and patience are very similar words in Greek. 
I think they overlap to a great degree. And I don't think we should make, what I'm about to say, to make this, uh, that, that these words can only mean what I'm about to say. But I, I think most commentators would say there is something to, at least in certain contexts, these words have a slightly different meaning, although they do overlap and can mean the same thing. Endurance often is, is speaking of enduring difficult circumstances. Patience refers to dealing with difficult people. And so what Paul is praying is that the very power of Jesus Christ would be unleashed in our lives so that we would have endurance to endure difficult trials, but also to have massive patience for difficult people. And then he goes on to say that this patience would be with joy. He's praying that we would have, we would have joy. If you find yourself irritated with people a lot, frustrated with people, complaining a lot about your difficult circumstances, unable to have joy in the midst of your sorrows or joy in the midst of these pressures, it's probably an indicator that Jesus is not the center of your life. It's Jesus plus something for you. It's not Jesus plus nothing. I can remember very well the, um, the most wonderful and most absolutely convicting dinner party I have ever attended. I met a couple who had two children. Uh, they were new believers in Jesus Christ. They had a translator. I couldn't even speak their language. I couldn't speak English. I couldn't speak their language. They began to tell me the story of how just a few months before, they both had, 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 had their minds and hearts open to the gospel, and they trusted in Christ alone. And it was like, uh, they, they just, it, it just changed everything about them. But it also brought incredible hardship into their lives. Their family immediately disowned both of them. In fact, some family members threatened to kill the husband because of him leading his whole family and his two young children to Jesus. He lost his job. He lived in a cave, he and his whole family. He and his wife and two kids lived in a cave for one month to stay away from the extended family trying to kill him. By the time I met him, he had moved into the, a large city uh, trying to hide from the extended family. His, he had no money. He, he had no prospects for jobs. He wasn't sure where he was going to live. And I looked at this, this person and I said, this is the worst thing I've ever heard. And yet that person was the most joyful person I have ever met in my life. He couldn't stop talking about Jesus. His wife couldn't stop talking about Jesus and the hope they had. And Jesus had forgiven them. And they were so joyful. But every aspect of their earthly life was a complete disaster. And I walked out of there yeah, encouraged by that. But honestly, when I looked in the mirror that night before I went to bed, I just looked at myself in the mirror and said, you ungrateful you you whiner you complainer you complain about your life yes I had difficulties back then I had difficulties now but I looked in the mirror and I said Troxel you don't get it you really don't get it 
These folks were, were centered on Jesus plus nothing. It's like the C.S. Lewis quote. They didn't have anything, but they had Christ. And since they had Christ, they wouldn't have had any more in their own minds if they had Christ and everything else. Are you growing in endurance with circumstances? Are you more patient with difficult people? Are you joyful in the midst of sorrow? Joyful in the midst of, of tears? It's all a matter of whether Jesus Christ truly has preeminent supremacy in your heart. And that's what Colossians is going to do for us week after week after week. And believe me, we all need it. Just a final word. Uh, from Colossians as we celebrate communion. In verse 13, Paul says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. <laughs> we, we used to be, before we came to Christ, we were trapped in a, in, in a realm of darkness, trapped by sin, enslaved to sin and death. And now because of Jesus Christ, we've been taken out of that realm and now we're in a new realm, free from the power of sin, free from the guilt of sin. We're in a different realm. It's the kingdom of, the, of Jesus. And he goes on to say, in, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption is a word that talks about how we were enslaved to sin in the marketplace of sin. Through the death and shed blood of Christ, he takes us out of that marketplace, out of that enslaving power of sin, and gives us freedom. Freedom from the guilt of sin. Freedom from the power of sin. And one day, freedom from the very presence of sin. And then he reminds at the very end, our sins are no longer held against us. We have been forgiven. And that's what this table is all about. So let me ask the servers to come forward and you can have a seat up front. I want to prepare us to take of communion. <clears throat> 